Welcome back to Spoonful of Sugar. I'm really excited to introduce our hosts for the season two finale of Spoonful of Sugar, Lee Berman and Myra Ponzi. These are both fourth year medical students from the University of Wisconsin, and they also host their own podcast called What Brings You In Today. What Brings You In Today is a medical humanities podcast created and produced by medical students at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. I've listened to a few episodes from the podcast myself, and I really enjoy the episodes because every single one that I've listened to has been really entertaining and really enriching. Um, they address a lot of really important topics that are critical to the field of medicine, um, you know, not necessarily content-related, but really key factors that will influence um, how we practice medicine today and how the practice of medicine will continue to evolve over time. You know, there's episodes on creativity in medicine, comedy writing, various kinds of narratives. Um, you know, they talk about things like everything from death and dignity to the role of memes as well as TikToks in medical humor. So um, I would definitely encourage you guys to check out their podcast. Again, it's called What Brings You In Today. Um, you can check out their Instagram page, their Twitter page, and um, on my Instagram page for Spoonful of Sugar, um, I'll definitely post some links uh, to their page so that you can check that out. And in the meantime, um, please enjoy this episode hosted by Lee and Myra. They're going to talk about bacterial endocarditis and wrap up season two of Spoonful of Sugar with this really important, commonly tested topic. Hope you enjoy. Hey listeners, I'm Myra And I'm Lee Berman, and we are both M4s at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. And we are also the co-hosts of What Brings You In Today, which is a medical humanities podcast that we run with other students from our school. Yes, definitely check us out. You can find us in Twitter or Instagram as WBYIT underscore UWSMPH. Yeah. <laughs> We're super excited to be hosting this episode of Spoonful of Sugar, and we hope you all enjoy we have a very, um, I would say, I don't want to say high yield, but I think it is high yield. <laughs> it's definitely very important. It's an important and I think an exciting topic. <laughs> um, speak for yourself. Yeah, I will speak for myself <laughs> on that. <laughs> but definitely an important topic, no matter who you are. That is true. Um, and we hope that this is helpful for you all studying for step one and also people who are getting ready to head out onto the wards in your clinical clerkships. I agree. This is something that I actually saw in my clinical rotations, and mm -hmm. I think it is very important that you know what it is and how to diagnose it, how to treat it. So here we go. Alrighty. So we're going to start off with just um, a couple of question stems, and we're going to present two cases that both have the same underlying pathology, but present a little bit differently, and we'll kind of talk about risk factors, clinical presentations for um, the pathology that we're discussing today, and we'll go from there. So for our first patient, we have a 37-year-old male who presents to the emergency department with five days of worsening fevers, chills, and fatigue. He does not have shortness of breath, chest pain, diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, or any sick contacts. His vitals show a heart rate of 115, blood pressure 104 over 80, and SpO2 
Lab workup reveals a hemoglobin of 12.3 and a white blood cell count of 26.4. The patient uses heroin daily, and physical exam shows track marks on the right and left arm and splinter hemorrhages. The patient also has a new murmur. So that's our first patient. And then our second patient... Our second patient is a 66-year-old female who presents to her PCP's office with about two to three weeks of severe lower back pain. She denies any known injuries or trauma and says that the pain prevents her from sleeping at night. She does endorse new shortness of breath with exertion, intermittent fevers, chills, fatigue, and night sweats. Um, Her past medical... History is significant for only osteoarthritis, GERD, and recurrent strep throat as a child. Oh, and a tooth extraction last month. Patient has a temperature of 99.8 and a heart rate of 85. On physical exam, she has severe tenderness to palpation at the lumbar spine. Okay, so we have two patients that we know have the same underlying etiology. So what things are you thinking um, when you listen to this two questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the biggest overlap between these two is that they both have some infectious symptoms. So they mm-hmm. have fevers, chills, um, potentially a low-grade fever in our second patient. Um, so both of them really are kind of screaming infection to me. Yeah. Um, although the source of the infection is kind of Um, you know, interesting to think about because in our first patient, he doesn't really have any localizing signs of infection. And then this patient, she has severe back pain, Mm -hmm. um, which kind of raises concern, you know, for some um, infectious process in her back. Um, But I think there's also a couple other risk factors for each of these patients that make me primarily concerned about our topic for the day, which is Bacteria and herditis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I think um, for me, the first in the first prompt, the thing that really sticks out primarily in terms of risk factors is this patient's IV drug use, mm-hmm. which is a really well-established risk factor for bacterial endocarditis. And then for the second, um, for the second patient, she definitely has um, one really kind of glaring risk factor, which is this recent tooth extraction. And then I'm also kind of curious about her history of like recurrent strep throat, because that makes me think about, um, you know, is there some underlying valvular abnormality due to potentially um, rheumatic fever as a child, just given Mm -hmm. this history of recurrent sore throat? Yeah, definitely. So now that you've mentioned those, I think you are right. IV drug use is a common and important risk factor. Mm -hmm. Um, Other risk factors include cardiac risk factors, which can include congenital heart disease or any other um, like valvular lesion Mm -hmm. or even if a person has had any cardiac surgery or has an an intracardiac device Mm -hmm. in place. Those are very strong risk factors. Um, As you said, um, this lady in the second stem has had a, a recent dental procedure, Mm -hmm. I think any type of surgery or procedure that can potentially introduce bacteria into the bloodstream is an important risk factor. And for some reason, dental procedures um, are 
included in that mm-hmm. and are also very common in like step one questions. Yeah, totally. So something to keep in mind. Um, and then other other things, as I said, anything that can introduce things into the bloodstreams, like indwelling IV catheters, mm-hmm. um, and then if any and if a person is immunosuppressed, that makes them vulnerable to infectious diseases in general. So right. we we think about that too. Totally. Um, so I think that really covers risk factors. What about presentation? Like what what about these two? Um, cases that we have described like what's similar what's kind of different about them in terms of how they're presenting yeah so in bacterial endocarditis we think about two types of presentations and i think these two patients embody those presentations very well Mm -hmm. in the first patient we see a patient that has overt signs of infection um has like a fever has chills Mm -hmm. um and has like sim- has been having symptoms for a short period of time, but those symptoms are strong enough to make them come to the hospital. Yeah. So that we we say this type of presentation is an acute presentation. Um, on the other hand, the second patient, the lady has been having this pain and this intermittent fever um, for about two to three weeks. So mm-hmm. like for a longer period of time, and this we call a subacute presentation, mm-hmm. um, and this can develop in weeks to months. Um, and when we see it like that, we see that it is a patient that has had, been go- has had these symptoms for, for a bit, and they've kind of been, like, adding up to now that it's, like, bothering them to a point that it's, like, affecting their daily, right. like, function. Right. Um, and in terms of like the organisms that cause acute versus subacute endocarditis, um, there's generally like two ways that we think about this. So for acute endocarditis, we're really talking about high virulence organisms. Exactly. And um, do you remember like what the primary one would be? Yes. So we think about Staph aureus in yeah, this yeah. setting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so an acute presentation, we kind of associate it with staph aureus. Mm-hmm. Um, while in the subacute presentation, we think about more lower bir- virulence um, organisms. Um, but we still do want to think about the, the staph, mm-hmm. which is the most common one. But other organisms that are involved are um, strep viridans as well as the HACE, C-E-K organisms. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And those ones are all just gram-negative rods that kind of endemically live in your, like, mouth. They're just oropharyngeal flora. Mm -hmm. Um, Another important bug to be aware of is strep gallolyticus. (laughs) No one hold me to that pronunciation, please. (laughs) Formerly known as strep bovis. Those are the same. And that's another important one to be thinking about. Um... And another important thing to consider about acute versus subacute endocarditis is what types of valves these can affect. So a very high virulence organism, that can affect a native valve, so a totally Mm -hmm. normal cardiac valve with no previous damage. And then these um, subacute endocarditis cases, you're more likely to have endocarditis on a valve that's been previously damaged or a mechanical valve, some reason why this valve in particular um, has been infected by a low virulence organism. Yeah, and I think that's important because it'll affect 
treatment. So mm-hmm. keeping in mind the organisms that could affect um, any, either presentation or different types of valves, um, either native or um, replacement valves or damaged valve valves will affect our treatment options later. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about that. Yeah. Cool. Um, so I think we've really kind of touched on with our two cases, we've touched on a lot of the signs and symptoms that a patient might have when they're presenting with this, but just some other ones to go over, um, would be general malaise, myalgias, arthralgias, night sweats, um, severe shortness of breath. Um, that definitely can happen with endocarditis because, um, if the valve becomes so damaged that you're having like valvular insufficiency, um, the patient can actually present with like florid heart failure signs and symptoms. So they might have some edema in the lower extremities. They might have um, like abdominal pain from ascites or something. Um, so it really can look like total heart failure, um, especially in that acute presentation where there's really severe valvular damage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you have a patient and you suspect bacterial endocarditis, like you want to start testing for it right away. Yeah. Like prompt diagnosis is the best thing or like the most important thing in this setting. Mm-hmm. Um, and for that, we we think about a set of criteria that is called the modified do criteria. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we want to do like with these patients is just trying to find, try to find these criteria to start to diagnose bacterial endocarditis and, and start um, treatment for it. Mm-hmm. So when you suspect bacterial endocarditis, the first thing you want to do is um, get blood cultures. Yeah. And you usually get three sets um, of blood cultures from different um, venipuncture sites. Um, and for the diagnosis, or one of the major criteria of this is to have two positive blood cultures spaced in time, mm-hmm. so at least 12 hours apart. So I guess we should talk about which are the ma- major criteria and the minor criteria. Yeah. Um, so major criteria, Myra already talked about one of them, which is the persistently positive blood culture. Um Another major criteria that you would look for is evidence of endocardial involvement. So you would definitely want to get a echocardiogram to look for vegetations on a valve. And usually I think you would start with a TTE, mm-hmm. and then if that's negative, you might go to the more sensitive TEE. But definitely you want to be looking at the valves to see if there's any um, concern for vegetation on there. Yes. So um, one thing about the blood cultures is that um, you want to find the two positive um, blood cultures of the typical microorganisms. Mm. Um, But then you can have, you can diagnose or you can establish a major criteria with just one positive blood culture for um, Coxiella burnetti, which is a very Mm. like atypical Mm -hmm. um, organism, but Um, You want to treat it right away. Cool. Um, And then there's also minor criteria for the Duke criteria, and those um, include the following. So number one, a fever above 100.4, some sort of risk factor. So um, IV drug use is definitely a risk factor. A prosthetic valve would would count for that. Um, 
And then other minor criteria criteria would be um, like any immunologic phenomenon that's the result of this endocarditis. That's like glomerulonephritis, Osler nodes, um, Roth spots, anything like that. And then any vascular problems from um, emboli that are the result of the new valvular lesion. Yeah, and that vascular phenomena includes the Janeway lesions, which we will talk about later on, but mm-hmm. it's something that they like to mention. Totally. Um, and then, so to establish the diagnosis of bacterial endocarditis, you want to have either two major criteria or one major and three minor or all five of the minor criteria. Um, cool. And then there's other like categories, like possible or rejected, but I think knowing the major, like the yeah. things to establish the diagnosis is the most important thing. Totally. And then I think um, just to like kind of briefly talk about treatment, um, I don't know that like for step one, it's super relevant, but I think it's just like good to kind of think about um, treatment differences between the acute versus subacute. So for like a really acute bacterial endocarditis presentation where you're like really concerned about it and this patient is decompensating, like our first patient, he had a pretty, he was pretty tachycardic and his blood pressure was a little low. That's the type of patient who you would you know, resuscitate with fluids, and then you'd probably start empiric antibiotics right away. Yeah. Um, so once you get the lab drawn, you can start empiric antibiotics. Yep. Versus our other patient who, you know, she just had been kind of feeling unwell for the past couple of weeks. That's someone who, um, you know, you might think about antibiotics, but the necessity for empiric antibiotics are a little bit less, um, less clear just because she's not decompensating. She's overall well. Um, so you would maybe think about holding off for a bit until there's more diagnostic clarity. Mm-hmm. So next thing we want to do is just go through, go through some questions based off of what we talked about. And we'll kind of base these questions on our patients that we have already kind of described to you guys. Mm-hmm. So Myra and I are just going to ask each other questions and we're going to do our best. <laughs> um, but no promises on our accuracy. Let's do it. Let's see what you got. The explanations will be accurate, but we're so, going to ask each other questions first. Let's start with the first patient, which is the 37-year-old male um, who has a history of daily IV drug use and is presenting with the more acute presentation of bacterial endocarditis with, with like, hemodynamic instability, mm-hmm. a fever, high bl- white blood cell count, um, and a new murmur. Okay. So um, what type of murmur do you think is most likely in this patient? And I'll give you a couple of options. Okay. So A, diastolic rumbling murmur best heard at the apex. B, blowing holosystolic murmur best heard at the apex. C, blowing holosystolic murmur best heard at the left lower sternal border or D, diastolic rumbling murmur best heard at the left lower sternal border? What do you think? Um, Okay, so my initial thoughts for this question, so basically we know that this patient um, uses IV drugs and it's a pretty common association for people who use IV drugs to get right-sided endocarditis because you're injecting peripherally the first part of your heart that sees that infected blood is going to be the right side of your heart. Um, So I think the tricuspid valve is probably most likely involved here. And I would be concerned about 
tricuspid regurge in this patient because mm -hmm. people with severe bacterial endocarditis, the valve can um, become so injured that you get insufficiency of that valve. So I am going to go with the third option, the blowing holosystolic murmur at the left lower sternal border because I think tricuspid regurge is probably what's causing the murmur. Yes. So you got it. Like the most important thing is think um, etiology and you said like bloodstream infection from the IV drug use. Mm -hmm. And as you said, that typically goes into the right side of the heart um, and you see it affecting the tricuspid valve. Um, and we do usually see tri tricuspid regurge. So with that, we would expect a holosystolic murmur and then the localization or the, mm -hmm. yeah, the localization of it is the left lower sternal border. So perfect. Cool. Um, and then I have a question for you um, about the same patient. So what is the pathophysiology of the splinter hemorrhages that we see in this patient with likely bacterial endocarditis? Okay. What are the options? So option A is immune complex deposition. B is emboli from the valvular lesion. And C is microabscesses. Mm, okay, I see what you're doing. You're giving me minor <laughs> criteria. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> good. So good time to review this. So um, I think the immune complex deposition um, in the immunologic phenomena, we have the Osler nodes, yep. um, which we typically see um, in the pads of the fingers and toes. And then the infectious or um, processes that you're talking about, you're referring to the Janeway lesions. Yep, the microabscesses. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so the Janeway lesions are erythematous macules that we see either on the palms and soles. Um, and then, as I said, the Osler nodes are subcutaneous violaceous nodules on the pads of the fingers and toes. And then one way of differentiating between the two is that the Osler nodes are tender while mm -hmm. the Janeway lesions are not. And one way to remember this is... <laughs> I know what you're going to say. <laughs> um, so I remember it by Osler, ouch, mm -hmm. and I'm sure a lot of people have heard this. We have gone through the same thing, but <laughs> it kind of sticks. So totally. Osler, ouch, it's tender, and Janeway is non-tender. Um, so for this patient that with the splinter hemorrhages, um, I'll say that it is an emboli from valvular lesions. Yep. And I think it is important to note that like emboli um, from from like emboli mm -hmm. are something that are things that are common in bacterial endocarditis, and right. we want to like be looking for them on physical exam and if patients. Like, these are typical complications that patients can have. Um, and, yeah, so it, so things that, so yeah, complications that happen due to this can happen anywhere in the body. So we've talked about, like, cardiac complications um, already, including valvular insufficiency and heart failure. But we can also have, like, um, neurologic complications, including like embolic stroke. Mm -hmm. We can have hemorrhages. We can also have emboli to organs. So we can see these in the spleen or the kidneys. Um, and we can even see it in the lungs. Um, we can have metastatic infection. 
we can have metastatic infection to other parts of the body, especially we see it in like vertebra in the spine. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so looking out for these complications is something that we want to like keep in mind when we have a patient with bacterial endocarditis. Yeah, and one thing I saw also is like septic arthritis as a complication of this. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's like really important if you see a patient with this that you're doing a really good physical exam and like really pressing on their spine, making sure that there's yes. no focal tenderness, pressing on some joints, making sure that there's nothing, there's no septic arthritis anywhere. Um, all super important. So, yeah, those are um, really the concerning complications of bacterial endocarditis that you would be looking out for. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, and then I have another question for you based off of our <laughs> patient. Um, so this says, which of the following describes the organism most likely causing endocarditis in this patient? So this is a great question for anyone studying for step one, because they love to ask you about the microbiology of all these organisms. <laughs> I'm an ID nerd, so I love it, but... <laughs> I see that. Mm-hmm. Um, so the options for you, Myra, are A, gram-positive coccyin clusters, B, gram-positive cocci in chains, alpha-hemolytic, gram-positive cocci in chains, gamma-hemolytic, and D, gram-negative rods. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You got it. So we already talked about how um, Staph aureus is the most common organism causing bacterial endocarditis, especially in an acute setting Mm -hmm. and especially in IV drug users. So I'm thinking Staph aureus. And we know that it's a gram-positive bug. Yeah. Um, but Lee put three gram-positive <laughs> options, so now we have to think more. Can I make it too easy? <laughs> no, but um, we know that staph bacteria grow, grow in clusters, so yeah. I'm going to go with the first option, gram-positive cocci in clusters, um, while strep grows in chains. Um, yep, yep, that's exactly right. Um, and just for anyone studying for step one, the gram-positive cocci in chains that are alpha-hemolytic, so that's going to be your strep viridens, and that has a really classic association with um, dental procedures. Yes, that's true. Um, the gram-positive cocci in chains gamma-hemolytic, that's going to be the strep bovis or the strep gallolyticus. <laughs> you said it good. Was that right? Okay, cool. I think Great. so. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> um, and that one is really associated with colon cancer. Yeah. So that's also a really good boards question. They love to say, like, oh, this patient has strep bovis bacterial endocarditis. Like, what is the next best step in management, like, after their endocarditis is treated? And the answer, yes, the answer is colonoscopy. <laughs> There's, like, a million Anki cards about this. Yeah, yeah, totally. They love it. You won't miss it. Um, yeah, I sure. hope not. We <laughs> well, now you won't. Exactly. <laughs> you might have before, but <laughs> you're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> um, and then last one, the gram-negative rods. So um, the H-A-C-E-K organisms, those are all gram-negative rods. And just to kind of tell you what those are, that's Haemophilus species, um, Aggregatobacter species. <laughs> Don't know what that means, but there you have it. Um, cardiobacterium. Iconella and Kingella species. Okay. So that's what that means. Well, good. I think we kind of went through um, all of our questions for our first patient, and now we have a couple for our second patient. 
Um, and this is the 66-year-old female with the more subacute presentation mm-hmm. who has the really severe back pain. Yeah. So we already talked about kind of the complications of bacterial endocarditis. So you might already be thinking kind of what this patient might have. Mm-hmm. And um, what I'm thinking and I'm concerned of is um, either vertebral osteomyelitis mm-hmm. or even like septic arthritis. So these are things that you want to like treat right away. So when you see a patient that has bacterial endocarditis and you start seeing complications, you want to test for those complications. Yeah. So Lee, I have a question for you. Okay. What would be the best next step in the management of her back pain? So would you just give A, NSAIDs and and then a steroid injection if that doesn't work? B, do you get an x-ray? C, do you just do bed rest? Or D, you get an MRI of the lumbar spine? Mm. So I would definitely go with D, an MRI of the lumbar spine, because as you mentioned, I'm really concerned about vertebral osteomyelitis in this patient. She has um, a history of fevers. She's got a really good story for a subacute bacterial endocarditis. So I really wouldn't want to miss a really yes. raging osteomyelitis there. So I'd go, I'd go with um, osteomyelitis or with D. And Very MRI good. Of the yeah, spine. you're right. If you have any of these what we call red flag symptoms, you would want to get the MRI because you can see like the soft tissue with it, not just the X-ray because we can miss it. It's not that sensitive. Um, and this was kind of a tricky question because if in the PCP office, you will see back pain a lot. And yeah. these are all like good, like, you know, you like if you see back pain, they can have a million of totally. like causes. Mm-hmm. And these are things that you could do for back pain. But this patient, since we're already thinking bacterial endocarditis, we want to like make sure this patient doesn't have a complication um, that can lead to worse things. So good job. Um, cool. Okay. So now I have we have another um, patient to present to you guys, and this time we're going to kind of talk about treatment. And this is definitely good information to know for step one, but I think it's even like more applicable to anyone who's going to start thinking about their clerkship soon, and even like step two and shelf exams, all that good stuff. Um, so this is a 78-year-old female with a history of aortic stenosis, status post mechanical valve replacement three years ago. And she is brought to the emergency room by her daughter with confusion and malaise. Her daughter states that the patient has complained of a headache, myalgia, arthralgias, and night sweats for the last week. The patient has a temperature of 100.5, a heart rate of 110, blood pressure 100 over 60, and workup reveals a white blood cell count of 15.7 and an ESR of 73. UA and chest x-ray are normal, and blood cultures are pending. Bacterial endocarditis is suspected. What is the most appropriate empiric antibiotic regimen for this patient? Okay. So I'll give you some options. A, piperacillin tazobactam. B, oxacillin and gentamicin. C, vancomycin and doxycycline. And D, vancomycin, gentamicin, and cefepime. Yeah. This is a good question, but before I get into the the to answer mm-hmm. this question, I think um, I just want to like highlight what things um, kind of like I'm thinking about as you read it. Yeah. So obviously, like we we see an infectious like picture, totally. um, but we also want to pay attention to the history of aortic stenosis mm-hmm. and the, especially the mechanical valve replacement. 
um, which, as we said, like is a, a significant risk factor for bacterial endocarditis. Um, so obviously we would start suspecting bacterial endocarditis. She has the increased white blood cell count. Um, but now you have already gotten the blood cultures. And since this patient um, has more like a hemodynamically unstable picture yeah. with a high heart rate and lower blood pressure, mm -hmm. we want to start empiric treatment right away. Um, and since this patient has a, a, a mechanical valve, we want to um, choose a treatment regimen that covers for all the possible bacteria yep. that could be causing this. Yep. So if we had someone, like the first patient with a native valve and a clear acute picture and clear risk factor, we could start a more like... Um, we call it simple mm -hmm. regimen, but this, narrow. Yeah, more narrow, exactly yeah. regimen. But since this patient has the mechanical valve, we want to really cover all those um, organisms. So um, I will go with option D, which includes vancomycin, gentamicin, and cefepime. Yep, and that covers for the gram-positive bacteria like mm -hmm. um, staph and strep, but it also covers for the gram-negative like H A C E K group. Mm -hmm. Yep. And it also covers for pseudomonas, which is important. The cefepime has pseudomonal coverage, and that's important just because of her um, non-native valve. So again, if she didn't have that prosthetic valve, we'd be less um, likely to, to think about that. But we definitely want pseudomonal coverage in this patient. Okay, so I'll ask you a question then. Eventually, this patient's blood cultures come back positive for MSSA. So what antibiotics do you think are most appropriate for this patient now that you have these results? Mm, do I get options? Yes. So let's see. A, vancomycin, B, penicillin, C, oxacillin, or D, doxycycline. Okay. Um, so now that this patient's blood cultures are back with MSSA, we can really narrow our antibiotic coverage. And this happens all the time. Like someone comes in really sick. You put them on empiric antibiotics, and then once you get culture data, you're able to more narrowly target um, the bug that you need. So um, in our last question, we mentioned that we would add Vanco, and really that Vanco is important because it covers MRSA. Um, but now we know that this patient has MSSA, so we don't need that MRSA coverage. So I know it's not vancomycin because um, we don't need to cover for MRSA anymore. Doxycycline isn't really a drug that's commonly used for bacterial endocarditis. Um, so I'm going to go with C, oxacillin, because I know that that's a really good staph aureus drug um, for MSSA. Okay. Well, you taught me that because I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> there you have it, people. Woo! <laughs> and a good You're way of remembering, learning. I like this little rhyme too. Um, it's like NAF for staph, nafcillin for staph. And NAF and oxacillin are kind of like the same little, they're like buddy drugs. So if you've got MSSA, you can think about like oxacillin, nafcillin. Okay. Okay, so let's wrap up. I think we gave you different um, scenarios of bacterial endocarditis, one in the more acute um, presentation and one in the more subacute presentation. And we talked about the multiple organisms that are commonly implicated in bacterial endocarditis, 
Um, Which are staph arias mm-hmm. and um, strep viridens. Yep. And then we talked about like common associations between those bugs and yes. the type of like risk factors and clinical presentation you might see in a question sum and on the wards. Which include cardiac pathologies, valvular lesions, um, intracardiac devices, as well as, as things like IV drug use mm-hmm. um, and recent surgeries just because they can introduce bacteria into the bloodstream. Mm-hmm. Um, we also talked about different symptoms that we illustrated in the question sense, but most importantly, we talked about why it is important to diagnose it as quickly as possible. And for that, we try to look for the modified two criteria by getting um, blood cultures, by getting a an echocardiogram, and by doing a very good physical exam. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we also mentioned a lot of the really like scary complications of bacterial endocarditis, like the septic arthritis, the septic emboli, stroke. Um, that's all really important to remember. Yes. So I hope this helps. Yeah, we definitely covered a lot, but um, hopefully you guys now are going to feel really comfortable when you see <laughs> lots of bacterial endocarditis questions because I'm sure that you will. So, yeah, um, thank you guys for listening. If you found this episode helpful, please subscribe to this podcast. And if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, visit spoonfulofsugar.org and post them under the link to this episode. Good luck with studying, everyone. And remember that if you ever have an SOS moment while studying, Spoonful of Sugar is always here to help the medicine go down.